Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. This episode of Talking Sleep is brought to you in part by Avidel Pharmaceuticals. The content of this episode was independently developed by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Many of us in sleep medicine and throughout healthcare are relying more and more on telemedicine for patient visits. But do we know how telemedicine compares to an in-person evaluation? Today's guest conducted a randomized clinical trial to compare telemedicine visits to in-person assessment for sleep-disordered breathing. His findings were published in the July issue of the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine. Dr. Mike Yurchison is the Chief of Sleep Medicine and is Fellowship Director at the University of Rochester Medical Center. Welcome to Talking Sleep. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell me about your paper. Uh, my colleagues and I uh, conducted this clinical trial between 2017 and just before the pandemic in uh, early 2019. And we studied a group of 90 patients. And our goal was to set out and find how a clinical assessment in person compared to uh, telemedicine assessment in terms of pretest probability of obstructive sleep apnea. You know, clinical decision-making is so important in all of medicine, but in sleep medicine, we rely on our history and our physical to come up with an impression and then determine what kind of testing would be appropriate or management plans. And so it's really important if we're developing a technology and um, care platform like telemedicine that the impression that you can come up with really is a, as close a facsimile to what you can achieve in person as possible. So was this based on then the interview and the physical exam comparing tele telemedicine to an in-person visit? That's exactly right. Uh, and, you know, obviously the, the exam that you get by telemedicine can be quite a bit different than what you get in person uh, in, in good ways and in bad. Uh, you know, the, there are some limitations in terms of assessing the patency of the, the nasal and the oral cavity. Uh, but at the same time, you get some extra information from observing a patient's or can at least get some information from observing the patient's surrounding, bedroom, uh, domicile. Uh, so there are some pluses and minuses to that. So when you, when you look at all of this information, what conclusions were you able to draw? It was really a, an eye-opening experience. Uh, and again, this was a pre-pandemic uh, study. And uh, we were able to follow 58 of the 90 recruited uh, patients through the end. And what we determined was that the kappa statistic, meaning uh, kind of the measurement of interrelator reliability between your in-person and telemedicine assessors for determining pretest probability for sleep apnea, put us in the moderate range. So in other words, there was a moderate correlation between what we developed, you know, in person versus what the online assessor uh, was was determining. Okay, uh, so, so, but that's interesting. So your research actually started before the pandemic. 
it 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 did start before the pandemic, which uh, which was interesting in a lot of ways. Um, I think one of the things that um, that we didn't really expect uh, that was kind of a a negative aspect of the study was that uh, we really had no problems recruiting patients to participate, but we really didn't have a lot of, um, I should say that we had more dropouts than we expected, uh, despite really making a lot of effort to reach them to, to get back for the telemedicine assessment. Uh, and I think that probably would have been different post-pandemic. Uh, people are definitely, patients are more familiar with telemedicine. Uh, but prior to the pandemic, they they really weren't as as familiar with that. Um, the other part that was interesting was that um, from a very practical standpoint, the, my colleagues and I um, really had a lot of equipment on hand and were, were really, I think, well positioned from our uh, from the research to, to kind of slide, uh, slide right in to, um, uh, you know, the, using this on a clinical basis when March of 2020 hit. <laughs> so that kind of worked out to your advantage. Yeah, then. I don't know whether it was dumb luck or whether we just had <laughs> foresight, but it, it worked out either way. Un- unforeseen, right? right? So then you had explained this to me that it, it kind of boils down to getting the right person, the right test. So uh, we don't necessarily think about it every day, but this is, again gets back to the concept of clinical decision making. When you see a patient in the office, you take a history and you do an exam and then you try to determine what your management plan is going to be. Uh, and, you know, there, obviously there can be other ancillary information if you have got you know, scans or, or lab tests or what have you. But for, for sleep medicine and specifically for sleep apnea, a lot of what we do is driven by the history and the physical exam. And so uh, in theory, if you can recreate that online, you should be able to, you know, come up with a, a management plan that should be pretty similar to what you would determine in person. Uh, you know, a moderate degree of correlation is exactly that. It's moderate. So it's not an excellent correlation. It's not poor correlation. It's somewhere in between. And what was, you know, another interesting aspect of our findings is that in general, the, the correlation with the historical elements. So when we asked people about snoring and witnessed apneas from bed partners, those things had a really pretty good correlation, especially the witnessed apneas. But the physical exam findings really did had a very poor correlation. So when we assess for things like malampati class and degree of overjet or underjet, and then the presence and size of tonsils, they really had poor correlation between between the raters. You know what I would love to see? I would love to see if that part got better after the pandemic, because I mean, there's definitely a learning curve, right? And so I wonder then if people have honed their, you know, their their skills in terms of a, a remote airway assessment. That could definitely be the case. We did, you know, as part of the training prior to, to recruitment, we did have training uh, for our assessors. Uh, we had three different assessors and they rotated. And so um, we had descriptions of cases, which I think would be pretty reasonable for the taking history, uh, history and, and getting that under your thumb. But but the physical exam was not something that we showed video of or even snapshots. And so it, it's possible that part of, um, you know, part of that poor correlation might have been just a matter of, of inadequate training. Well, and I almost wonder if we could harness technology, 
you know, you, you kind of had, had talked to me a little bit about, you know, could you maybe take a video and get just a much better, more robust airway assessment? Because, I mean, it's so much bigger, right? Yeah. You, can, you can make your window really big and then you can really get a decent look if you have the right bandwidth and you have, you know, you can coach your patient to, to do it appropriately and, you know, technology and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, the the exams, it's in some ways the exam, at least in theory, online could be better than what you do in person. I mean, the 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 screen, as you point out, is huge, and so if you can get a good quality um, picture of the say the oral cavity, you you can just visually get a good inspection of it. Now, you know, obviously. You know, you don't have a tongue depressor and that can make a difference. Uh, you know, the nasal cavity, our examination of that is is um, pretty minimal. Uh, but I, I think that, again, in theory, that, that you could use that to your advantage on a clinical basis. I, I kind of think that, that you're right. You're on to something about the technology. And some of it may be, um, you know, maybe some... Computerized way of assessing the patency of the airway—that's possible. I personally think that um, there might be a different way of, of thinking about this. I mean, I'm making an assumption that even though uh, the historical elements had a really good correlation and the physical exam elements had a poor correlation, and that we kind of met in the middle in terms of our overall assessment. Um, I think there might be ways that we can use technology leveraging, say, the electronic health uh, record and, and for, you know, trying to figure out who's at risk for sleep apnea and who's not that may have nothing to do with anything else we've ever thought of. I mean, you know, we have all these questionnaires that are used both in research and clinical, a stop bang questionnaire and the Berlin questionnaire and the names questionnaire. Uh, but it may be that the best correlations have nothing to do with or very little to do with, um, you know, maybe BMI or uh, snoring per se or apneas. I mean, those things are all important, but maybe it has something to do with I don't know how many trips you made to the emergency department in the last three years or how many times you saw your, your regular doctor or, you know, changes how quickly your weight goes up or down. I mean, right. I'm just sending out examples, but <laughs> this is where, you know, the EHR really may allow us to develop um, new tools uh, of, um, you know, to assess pretest probability that we've never even thought of before. Well, it, and it's almost unleashing this, right? And being, and I suppose as clinicians, being willing to consider something different. That's exactly it. We have to, I mean, this will allow us the tools to think creatively and make those kind of connections, uh, you know, if we put the effort into doing that. So if we combine all of this experience that we now have with telemedicine and we combine that with your research findings, how do you think we can better leverage telemedicine moving forward? This is this is a really interesting question, and I think there are a couple of different ways to answer it. Uh, you know, in a most practical way, how we leverage telemedicine has a lot to do with, um, you know, how the payers are going to uh, view this moving forward. You know, just purely from a, a clinical basis. 
I find, you know, part of the reason why we're able to to spring into action, so to speak, as a as a field is that suddenly the payers were, were recognizing these codes and, <laughs> and paying, uh, you know, all of our, uh, you know, colleagues for the, the valuable work that they do by telemedicine. And, you know, we're all, I mean, we're all making an assumption, I think, that this is going to continue. And, and I think that's the most likely outcome. But, um, you know, leveraging it basically means um, showing value in this and, um, you know, from whether it's an access standpoint or, um, you know, a reliability standpoint so that we can show these payers this is feasible and it, it's valuable and, um, you know, it's it's what patients are expecting and, and frankly, providers are expecting so that uh, so that they see that that really this is an indispensable tool at this point. Well, and so I'm I'm kind of thinking about this um this idea that you had that you shared with me about um could we maybe use infrared and you know do sort of this analysis to see if the temperature of the air changes when people breathe in and breathe out and does that tell us if it was an effective breath and you know I mean this is really new territory we uh, we were collaborating this number of years ago with uh, some of our colleagues from the cardiology division here at U of R, and they were really interested in um, uh, kind of um, analyzing the, either pixels or voxels on um, the video that we were recording here in lab. And um, basically, it was a quantitative assessment of each breath and how each breath might different be different during, um, you know, an apnea or hypopnea versus normal breathing. And I'm just, again, this eventual ways of developing the video that we have, you know, again, this is an advantage where it could be recorded. You might be able to do a computer analysis eventually of the airway and come up again with a creative way, a novel way of really assessing the airway that you can't really do in person. So let's take a quick break and then review some ways to make video evaluations easier for us and our patients. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Narcolepsy treatment is about to change, and Avidel Pharmaceuticals is leading the way. With our deep understanding of narcolepsy and unique drug delivery technology, we're committed to advancing narcolepsy treatment to make the dream of better days and nights a reality. Visit avidelfornarcolepsy.com to sign up for updates on our progress. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. I'm talking with Dr. Mike Yurchison about telemedicine in sleep-disordered breathing patients. So what was telemedicine like for you personally? Uh, you know, the, the funny thing about this is as, as time went on, I, I kind of personally realized that I liked telemedicine more as an area of, of study than I liked actually doing it clinically. <laughs> um, so I was one of the first ones back in the office, I think, when when we got permission from the administration to to come back here. And and still, the bulk of what I see, patients that I see, are um, you know in person at this point. Uh, we have some other offshoot projects that we're doing now. And so, um, you know, I'm still participating in those. Uh, But go ahead. No, I was gonna say, do you think it's because you have a little kiddo at home? Or is it just sort of comfort and familiarity? Or is it 
you know, kind of all of the above? Uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't know this for sure, but you know, when we say that there's a moderate correlation between the assessments that you make in person versus online, I guess my bias is that that the interactions that I have in person are, are seem to be just more robust, at least at this stage, mm. and uh, and that the correlation doesn't tell you who's right, right? I mean, you know, it could be. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> it, it just, and so I'm making an assumption that the person, that when I see somebody in person, that's the more correct assessment. Uh, I mean, it is kind of interesting in our study that, you know, in the end, a number of these patients went through and had, um, you know, uh, home testing and the correlation between the in-person and the telemedicine assessor when they were actually reading the study was was not a hundred percent, but very close. Mm. And so, if we can actually, you know, bring the patient to the right management plan, the chances that we're going to miss sleep apnea by, you know, whether you saw them in telemedicine or in person, I think are pretty slim. Um, but I, I don't know. I think it's it's just that I find there's a lot more richness when I see somebody in person and. Um, you know, it, it's a nice balance in our group now because we have some people who prefer to see folks um, by telemedicine. It, it works, you know, either with their home life or, or just convenience or they, they think the, you know, that type of encounter is really um, important for some reason. And then we have other providers who just couldn't wait to get back here in the office. So, well, and, and you kind of hit on this a couple of times that it's, you know, there's a little bit of technique and experience that is required to really conduct a good, you know, physical exam via telemedicine. And, and so I'm hoping that you can share some of these tips with us. Right. So uh, two of the things that that we found by doing, you know, just some trial and error on, you know, for the study and, and maybe, you know, some of our colleagues have already figured this out themselves. Uh, the light and both of them actually have to do with lighting. So getting the, the angle of the light and the light kind of um, basically where it should be, it can be a challenge. And I, I, you do a lot of telemedicine. I mean, have you found this in your own clinical encounters? Oh, 100 percent. There's a yeah. ton of coaching. And we usually is, is part of our pre, you know, when when we call the patients and whatnot, we ask them to have a flashlight or a pen light or an extra phone or some source of light. And then we ask them, you know, to place themselves where they're not backlit you know, for yes. example, and to make sure it's quiet and no notifications and that sort of thing. So yeah, we definitely do prep work. <laughs> yeah. else it's kind of a mess. And that and that is is great when it happens that way. I mean, we certainly, I, I would say, you know, the bulk of our telemedicine encounters are done with somebody either at home or in a quiet area. I mean, we all have had telemedicine encounters where somebody is calling us from the parking lot of picking up their dinner or, you know, worse yet, they're actually um, riding in a car, worse than that, even driving. We've had to cancel a couple of telemedicine yes. or postpone them because people are driving trying to talk to us. And they're not happy when you're like, sir, I really need you to either pull right. over or we need to reschedule. And they're right. like, I'm fine. I'm like, I really can't do this like this while you're driving. No, no. We, yeah, we can't be, uh, you know, aiding and abetting people in their, you know, kind of um, driving um, transgressions, I guess. But uh, but so backlit is definitely kind of a cardinal sin, and uh, I think probably many of us have figured that out. Uh, the the um, you know in terms of assessing the airway and getting light into say the oral cavity, two things that that we learn tricks kind of 
One, uh, you know, a flashlight is is great. Some of those flashlights are really bright, uh, and there, you know, everything is LED. When we did the study, we learned this pretty easy. Uh, I'm sorry, pretty early, <laughs> and we issued pen lights for everybody, and we had to go kind of retro. We and we got incandescent pen lights. Uh, but we found that, you know, if we didn't specify the light source, we got a lot of washout. The contrast really was not very good, and we had a hard time seeing. Uh, mm. And so I think that's part maybe, uh, you know, of, of what people might experience. Uh, so if you don't have an incandescent light, which almost nobody has anymore, uh, asking patients if they're using, say, a cell phone light to, to reduce that, uh, brightness, I think, can actually give you a better exam. You don't need the light to be intensely bright. Um, and then the other thing that we sometimes run into, I personally think that the best type of uh, video would be is from a, a stationary camera. So whether it's a desktop or a laptop or even a, a you know a tablet, but something that's stationary on a, a like a platform in front of the patient is the best. But a lot of patients do. Um, you know, uh, smartphone kind of encounters. And in order to get good lighting from that, we kind of use a back-to-back -back, uh, cell phone trick. So um, it, this is a little bit hard to describe. It's kind of like, you know, I have a face for radio, but uh, <laughs> you take the cell phone that's being used for the, the video encounter and you position it slightly behind another cell phone both of them with their backs or um, kind of a front, the one with the video front to you and, and the back of the, the other cell phone um, kind of sandwiched together. And you can use the, the light of the secondary cell phone, the one that's not being used for the video. And this way, the light is positioned right under the camera. And that gives you a really good um, light source and light direction, I guess, into the oral cavity. And uh, we thought that was kind of a useful development. So how did your fellows do with all of this? Fellows were just absolutely indispensable uh, when we were doing the trial because they served as our study coordinators. And uh, they also set up all the databases. And again, this was pre-pandemic. So uh, one of the two fellows that scanned, uh, spanned over two years, one of the two fellows that stayed on as a faculty member. And she she was very familiar with telemedicine when when we needed to really kind of go live on short notice. Um, you know, the fellows that we've had since, we certainly give them training in telemedicine uh, for, I don't know, I guess it was March of 2020 through the end of the academic year. That fellow didn't see another person in person, another patient in person, you know, that, that entire four months. Oh, wow. Um, so, uh, you know, she really did very well. And uh, last year, there was a little bit more of a hybrid. Uh, which I thought was kind of more of a natural, um, you know, kind of um, you know, more of a robust way of doing it. I think one totally telemedicine or totally in person is not really serving our fellows well. So I think the mix has actually been been good. So, but now, right, we're headed into another COVID wave. So does that change <laughs> your plan? Do you think, you know, wh what does your crystal ball tell you? Are we, do you think we're going back to full telemedicine? Yeah, uh, I think there are definitely going to be areas that are, are doing that. And I, you know, I think from a very practical term, this could certainly delay some of the, 
I mean, we, I, we had already gotten notice here. We had a lot of freedom to see um, patients even across state lines in some cases. You know, they suspended some of the, um, the licensing requirements. So here in New York, we were able to see people in Pennsylvania during the state of emergency and in Florida. Um, so, you know, from a very practical aspect, I think there, there could be a delay in lifting some of those um, uh, how to put this? They were gonna they were gonna suspend the suspensions. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> uh, so uh, you know, I think that that from a practical aspect, we're going to be able to continue doing that. And then, of course, in different areas of the country are different. You know, I think think some of us are are going back into, uh, you know, if not mandates, at least, you know, highly recommended mask, um, um, masking and other places may, may not be doing that for one reason or another. Uh, so I expect our fellows going to be doing this through at least the, you know, the remainder of the academic year. So talk to me about impending telemedicine legislation. So this, I'm glad you asked me about this. This is really important. And these, these, they're two separate bills as it stands. There's a, a Senate version and a House version, and they're not identical. And of course, I'm not always privy to the, the changes that are, are being made, but uh, the House version is actually kind of exciting to watch on the, um, the U.S. government uh, congressional website because you get to see how many co-sponsors there are. And they started out with, you know, basically half a dozen, including, by the way, our, our local representative from um, from our local district here, Joe Morelli. Uh, but, uh, you know, in recent weeks, there definitely have has been a lot of steam. They picked up a lot of steam. And I'm sure you're familiar that just this week, there were a number of different industry and and um, academic bodies that that wrote a letter to Congress. I think it was close to 200 different groups, um, basically urging Congress to pass legislation because we don't want to miss an opportunity to to leverage this moment, uh, you know. And I think if we we don't speak up, that that the moment could potentially be lost. So uh, I think there are a number of different provisions in the bills. Probably the one that's most important to to you know just the, our general membership is um, you know lifting the restrictions in terms of where the originating site is. So prior to the uh, pandemic, um, you know, telemedicine is something that that was reimbursed by CMS. But you had to be in a certain area, mostly like rural areas, uh, so the patients could go to say like a, you know, a, a, maybe a telemedicine center or just a general medical center, and then, um, you know, with a presenter often, but sometimes without, you know, see a, a provider who is distant from them. But of course, you know, many of us practice in locations that. Uh, you know, are not rural per se. I mean, you uh, you probably, Seema, you see a lot of patients. Mm-hmm. Maybe this, you know, prior to the pandemic, you didn't have as much trouble with this. But but in metro areas, um, you know, uh, <laughs> you couldn't see as many people if your patient population was coming, say, from a, from a city or a suburban population. Right. So lifting those restrictions from the originating site so that not necessarily uh, a rural site, they could be anywhere. And that really, I think, will will be the biggest um, benefit if, if those bills are passed. You know what I love about telemedicine too, even even the verbiage, right? It, it's very patient centric. So the originating site is where the patient is, right? It's not where the doctor is. Yes, I, and that that is um, that's exactly. 
I think what um, what we all should be aiming at, you know, patient-centered care, the patient is in the center of all of this. Right. And I think the um, there, there was something, a letter that went out, like you were talking about with different organizations signing on. And one of them specifically was addressing this telehealth cliff. And that has 430 organizations, including ours, the AASM. Right. So this is this is really critical for us to be a part of, uh, you know, we in the ASM, but also just physicians in general. Uh, so I guess if I were to make a, a plug, uh, you know, I, a shameless plug, but uh, <laughs> but uh, the dollars that you donate for these kinds of uh, lobbying efforts can have a, a make a difference. So if you if anybody listening to the podcast is inclined to make a donation to the ASM uh, Political Action Committee, I can tell you uh, for sure those dollars are well spent. I forgot you're on the pack. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to, as I said, I had to kind of um, shoehorn that in some way, but uh, but uh, it really does make a difference. And and we've we participated recently in the um, you know sleep medicine on the hill, which was obviously virtual this year, but met with a number of uh, uh, house members and made them aware. I can tell you that. Many of them already were aware of the telemedicine part, and there, of course, are other initiatives, too. All right. Well, thank you so much for the study, and thank you for joining us today and really for showing us the promising future of telemedicine uh, in sleep medicine. I, uh, I was glad to, to be here today, and if, if you would allow me just to, to recognize the other authors and collaborators on the paper, uh, really, because the study wouldn't have been able uh, to be, you know, uh, completed without them. And so, uh, Jonathan Marcus, Carolina Marcus, Jennifer Marcella, uh, all three of them are uh, faculty members here at the University of Rochester Sleep Center. Uh, also, Will Pridgen, who uh, is also at University of Rochester, uh, he's a PhD and runs his own um, uh, sleep lab here for research purposes. Uh, Susan Messing, who uh, is our biostatistician, but uh, I unfortunately passed away just two months ago. So oh uh, we expend, extend our condolences to, to her and her family. And, um, and then Kevin Nguyen, who is a former fellow of ours, who now is in uh, Southern California. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.